Hello, everyone. This is Sakeb at Tennis with an Accent, and it's one of those Sundays where I'm totally punching above my weight class. Uh, we have uh, two of my favorite commentators, uh, Nick Lester and Rob Connick, who just finished work in Monte Carlo. If this is a partnership, this is something which I grew up watching, Haynes and Greenwich. These guys don't get into any runouts. They never cut off, cut each other off. And uh, wisdom is always, you know, at the viewer's discretion. Welcome, guys, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah, look forward to it, Zach. Thanks for having us on the show again. No, no, absolutely. Pleasure is all mine and whoever's going to tune in. So Nick is doing this for the second time, Rob, so I'm going to just start with you. Uh, he says something that has stayed with me uh, in his last podcast, and that was more about how his approach to commentary works. And he said the mantra is to add something to the picture because the viewer already knows the action and uh, less is more. So is that something you also live by? Absolutely. Um, you know, that was something I always remember John Barrett talking about uh, when he was commentating. And uh, you know, I really looked up to JB. He was, uh, he was the guy that I always used to listen to when we were watching Wimbledon growing up. And for me, I used to get a lot of inspiration as well, probably more recently from a lot of the uh, American basketball commentary. I love the enthusiasm for what they did. They engaged me. And, um, you know, I love my sport a lot. And and I think if I can bring enthusiasm to my broadcast, that will hope, hopefully engage the fans and the viewers back at home. So I try to bring that element in as well. And uh, when you prepare for a match while prepping, does it help that you are going to be partnering with someone like Nick or Arvin Parma, someone who's uh, you know well and you don't overstep? Or is there a time when you decide before the show who's going to be the lead anchor? Or how does that role play for both of you guys? Nick, uh, you can go second and Rob, you start this. Yeah, um, it's like a good doubles team, uh, Sakib. You know each other's um, strengths and weaknesses and you know when to interject. And often if it's a big point, you know, the lead commentator will always come in first, but then, you know, nick a point to me to say, end of the point, you're coming in here, I'm laying out, and vice versa. So, you know, there's hand signals as well in the booth and gesturing towards one another so that you don't have those incidents where you're talking over one another. And for me, especially at the end of a big point, the last thing you want to try and do is have both guys speaking at the same time because then it really does ruin the sound grab. So we're uh, very much aware of that. Uh, and as far as the, the pairing is concerned, generally when I'm, when I'm with Nick, I will be doing color and he'll be doing lead. But if, if I'm with Arvin Palmer or some of the other guys, uh, then I do the lead commentary. And that's been the, the beautiful thing about this gig that we've had doing the world feed. And you know, in the early years, doing so many long hours is that you do get the opportunity to practice both. And hmm. for, for most guys who are former players, you end up being an expert. But it's been, um, you know, really lucky for me to be able to, to do some uh, lead commentary as well because then you're honing different skills and then it makes you more attractive to different broadcasters. Absolutely. Nick, you want to add something to this? Yeah, I mean, listen, from my perspective, clearly I didn't play at this level. So, you know, even though I've played tennis my whole life and, and played competitively, I, I didn't play at the highest level. So, obviously – I'm very aware of that as well. I'm very aware of my place and, and just how much my opinion matters. Obviously, someone like Robbie and Arv, those guys have, have played at the highest level. So it's, it's you know, for me, it's more about sort of feeding them questions and, and trying to, you know, add my bits of input. I've, you know, I've followed the game my whole life. I've been compensating, been fortunate to compensate for a decade now. So 
I certainly got to know a lot of different patterns of play and a, a lot of different sort of elements to what makes a player play well and when a player is feeling good or when a player isn't feeling good because you pick it up pretty much straight away because you're seeing them all the time. So you know, you know, you can generally get a feel of whether a, whether a player is striking the ball well or how he feels this particular week or how important a week is or how, you know, where they're at in their careers. So it's it's for me, it's about probably looking big picture trying to find out what's important at any given time over the course of a season for a certain player. And and then, you know, us having a conversation because that's what it is. It's a conversation we're having as commentators. We are, you know, our, our job is to, as I, as I said, to, to be able to, to add to what's going on at home. Everyone can see what's happening. But, you know, obviously in downtimes and matches, we have a lot of different conversations about the sport. Yeah, and just to pick up off the back of that, Sakib, um, you know, just because you were a great player, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a, a good broadcaster. The skill sets are completely different. Of course, one's hitting a tennis ball, the other's talking about it and, and analyzing it. So that's something else you've got to keep in mind. And, and like anything else, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Uh, I think some guys have a bit more of a natural knack for it than others. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, probably, that's probably our take on it uh, if you're having a look at uh, the whole picture, no, I absolutely agree with uh, you know a lot that you know you're always in the booth and you're echoing this right here. Uh, again, I'm a student of the game and uh, I get this opportunity sometime to mix it up with guys like you, and I take this as a total opportunity to just enhance you know what I've learned. And uh, at my level, uh, we call ourselves like hardcore tennis fans, and a lot of criticism is, especially in mainstream media in the U.S. where I'm based out of that sometimes they're catering to the casual audience, which is fine. We need the casual fan because, you know, you need to grow the numbers and that's okay. But a lot of times that takes away from the match. And there are a lot of great voices here. I'm not just criticizing, but I think it's part of the culture where sometimes during a point, you know, we are defer- you know referring to someone's accolades, how a glorified a career is. And we are not focusing on, say, you know, who the opponent is. Like, you know, it could be a guy as accomplished as, as Nishikori or it could be, you know, Borna Chorich could be Schwartzman. Sometimes it does too, become too much about Federer, too much about Nadal. So how do you make that balancing act? I know you guys don't get that criticism, but what is your message, uh, you know, and how do you stay out of the, the whole fanboy act? I know you're professionals, but I'm sure the temptation is there sometimes. Honestly, for me, it, it's not. Um, I'm a fan of tennis. <laughs> so it doesn't matter who's on the court. Um, it, it's not about that for me. I, I have the utmost respect for everyone. I, I know what it takes to be uh, what well, these guys are putting in week in, week out, the vast majority of them anyway. You know, I've seen, I may not have played again, going back to what I was saying, but as far as how tough it is to be this good, you know, Robbie and I talk about this all the time away from the microphone. This is, this is, if not the toughest sport to be the very best at, certainly one of them. Uh, I can't necessarily speak for other sports, but obviously having read a fair bit about it, um, you know, this is this is these are special athletes out here. Uh, you know, in every regard, in terms of the mental side, the physical side. Um, you know, what you have to go through to to be among the elite in this sport is is as tough as it's ever been. And um, I'm just I'm just at the utmost respect for for these guys. You know, obviously there are times when players you can sense aren't necessarily putting in the best of efforts, but they're humans. It's, it's a week in week out thing. Well, time you know, it's it, it's just a you know every week is different. So. I'm not a fan of Vaughn in particular. I'm a fan of, of of the roots they've taken and the past they've taken. That fascinates both Rob and I. Certainly the, the backgrounds, that's an element of the sport that we both thoroughly enjoy digging into in terms of what it takes, what are the roots, what are the paths, how are they different, are there any patterns? That's something we love talking about. And, um, 
you know, each each one obviously has their own individual way, but there are certainly a lot of elements um, in terms of, you know, sort of coming together as a whole that, that do make up these great players. Yeah, no, I think... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, just picking up on what Nick said as well, and, and probably to your initial question, I am a fanboy. I love these guys. I love them for how good they are at what they do, and they're all very different, you know. I always try and look on the positive. I think it's so easy for for commentators to be critical. I think it's important that when somebody isn't playing well, of course, you call them out about it. But you're not going to harp on about things over and over again. I'd rather choose to look on the positive. That is my commentary style, whether someone likes it or not. That's up to them. But, you know, I love the way Federer plays the game, uh, the way he has a shot making. I love the way Nadal competes. I think it's it's insane how good of a competitor this guy is. I love the way that Djokovic has been able to find a way to beat both those guys on a regular basis for a while. And and Andy Murray trying to, you know, stake a claim there and win majors against three of the best players ever to play the sport. So, I mean, I laugh on social media when you get people saying, oh, you're so in love with uh, Federer or, you, you know, you're such an, you're so negative towards Nadal or, or Djokovic. These people have got such blinkers on it. You can't pay attention to them. And then you go onto their, their Twitter profile and you see a Nadal fanatic or Djokovic fanatic. And you just got to laugh because you, sometimes I wonder what match they're watching when I'm commentating on. Because, as I say, for most of these guys, I think uh, what they're achieving is it's beyond a joke. And we've been so privileged to be sitting front and center watching some of the very best players to ever play the sport. We're watching them, uh, you know, live and in living color. No, no, absolutely. I agree because uh, more eyes are good, but more eyes also have a cost. Like uh, everybody, including myself, has an opinion. And you're right. Sometimes a lot of un- opinion is unwarranted and unqualified, which is okay, which sometimes makes for a great conversation. And other times you can ignore it. So my question, you know, you have duly answered. It's an extension now. Uh, Robbie, uh, I definitely know uh, where you're coming from, but not you guys, but a lot of times, you know, very prolific you know, tennis commentators, not just in commentary, people who have columns or, you know, podcasts or who are writers. Sometimes their Twitter profile is just focusing too much on the Golden Goose, which is the big four, which is totally okay. They sell tickets, they bring more eyes to tennis. But a lot of times, in my opinion, and you can disagree, I feel uh, the story of the victor who's not part of the top four or the big four guys is sometimes shortchanged. Do you see that as the same light as I'm saying, or you think that's that's part of the package? Definitely. I think you're spot on. But um, you understand, and I think you understand and we understand as well, that people have got to try and get eyeballs on their pieces. And they do that by writing about Federer, Nadal, Djokovic and Murray. But I think if you're someone who loves the game and you're a bit of a tennis aficionado and you love the sport as much as we do, you do want to dig into the stories of the other guys because some of them are as fascinating. Um, some of the hardships and and the stuff that they've gone through is, you know, it blows your mind. I think of Ivan Dodik, you know, his story, you know, what he's been able to achieve and, and what he's been through. That's just one small example that's, that's sprung to my mind. Um, and I love those kind of stories about guys who perhaps are, are ranked a little lower. But those guys are the people that we should be relating to because, you know, the top four guys are, they're just such anomalies. They're such outliers that they are not the norm. You know, very often when I'm talking at seminars and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, relate to other players, I won't use a, a Federer or an Adal as an example. I, I'd probably rather use someone like a Tommy Robredo or a David Ferrer who's, 
who's mm. mere mortals in comparison to the other guys, but who have carved out unbelievable careers for themselves um, and have, have made a healthy living doing something they love. So I think you're exactly right. It's good if we can talk about other players and not only the big four. And, and, and I say this, and this one I'll direct to Nick just to extend the conversation because, you know, I'm, I'm a Federer fanboy, but I try to leave that at home. And I've, I think I've accomplished a lot in the last year and a half by doing this podcast that I leave my Federer identity on the side because tennis was always bigger for me. And I believe with the next gen being promoted, we still have an obligation as whatever voice we have to promote every sort of player because once these guys are gone, there's going to be a big void. And I know the game itself is a cycle. It'll find its own way. But it shouldn't be just about these guys. And I think you guys embody that very much. So your thoughts on that, Nick, and then we can switch to some generic questions. Uh, on yeah, it, it's completely undeniable that when these two guys go away, there will be a huge, as you say, void in the sport. You, you can't get away from that fact. And that is obviously why the Tour have been very keen to push the next gen. It's, it's, it's actually been very successful, hasn't it? Largely because the players have had a bit of success last year. Um but you know, not only do we need players, we need we need personalities. That's that's got to be a factor. You look at someone like Denis Shapovalov, who, uh, even though he's only played a handful of tour level matches, for me is someone who, when he appears on the order of play, brings an element of excitement because not just because of you know who he is, but it's the way he plays, it's his style of play, it's his personality. He's he is someone who I think if can he can have a lot of success, will will certainly um, draw a lot of people towards the sport. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, the, the tour, are they worried? Are they, you know, at the moment worried about the filling the void at the moment? They don't have to be because things are still okay. You know, these two guys are still top two of the rankings and by a long way, but, um, yeah, you know, there is going to be a gap to fill hundred percent sure there is. And, um, let's hope some of these young guys can win it. And, you know, it, it has been good to see them come through. You talk about Shapovalov, uh, Rublev's another guy who's obviously played well, some good tennis this week. Um, they're coming through, but you know, let's be honest, they would probably sign for a quarter right now of what these guys are achieving. You know, ten, to win to win a tournament eleven times. I mean, that is just obscene. You know, Bruno Suarez. Yeah. Bruno Suarez nailed it last year. He said, "Guys, guys are lucky to play the event ten times, let alone win it." And that really, to me, summed it up perfectly um, as to where we are. You know, let's 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 get realistic. Okay, this is not going to happen again. Um, we're living in very extraordinary times. So let's, let's not expect that, but let's hope that these young guys come through and let's hope they bring some personality because we do need personality. Uh, sure. So let's uh, now bring in Nadal, you know, who was just victorious a couple of hours ago and he made number 11 look routine. That's how good he is. And you guys have your eyes and you've been calling his matches, I think, for most of those 11 wins. Uh, so, Nick, is there something you want to point out that what you see from Nadal, we take it for granted. Is he really that much better? What is most amazing that he could sustain this level? Throw some light into something that we often, you know, from your from your viewpoint, because you've been so close calling these matches. Uh, what is most staggering about this this run, this this eleven wins? You know what the most staggering thing is for me that he wins four in love yesterday, and he goes straight to the practice court. That's all you need to know about this guy. That says everything to me. You know, he's, he has demolished everyone this week, and yet he inside still feels as though he needs to get better. 
He is not happy with the level he's produced this week. Forget forehands and backhands. It's about how he perceives himself and how much he wants to improve. And if ever you needed a lesson for anybody at any level of business, sport, whatever it is, for me, we saw it yesterday. Because this is a guy who is so unique in terms of his approach that, let's be honest, he didn't really face a challenge this week, and yet he still wanted to get better. And that is his own personal goals. He is driving himself forwards to become a better player and, and to, to win these big titles. And <laughs> the results are there for everyone to see, aren't they? I, I thought that was anecdotally. Mm. I think that'll be something that certainly me, maybe I'm overblowing it a little bit, but, but perhaps I won't forget that for a while. As soon as he won that match in the semi-final, he got his phone out and he said, we're going to the practice court. You know, no one's got four games against this guy in the last 35 sets, and he still has room for improvement. For me, that says everything. And Rob, same question. Is he playing again? I know this is these are questions we sometimes, you know, don't have a definite answer. But according to your observation, is he playing better than when he was racking up those Roland Garros titles before Djokovic started making his inroads? Is this well, Nadal at the same level? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, his backhand, I think he's hitting better. I think that's a shot that's improved over the last couple of years. He's hitting it, to me, it seems like he's hitting it harder than ever, maybe flattening it out a bit more, especially the backhand cross court. And I just thought he looked so fresh this week, Saqib. I think the injuries have been a blessing in disguise for him. Um, his legs have looked full of running. Um, yeah, for me, just just from an observation, it just looks as fresh as ever. And it's it's been in the results. I think this is the fifth time now that he's won this event in straight sets. So, you know, testimony to to everything about his game, that, that it's still his base level of play on a clay court is just so high that it's so difficult for anybody to live with him. And, uh, you know, before we wrap this up, uh, I want to get a couple of questions on Novak Djokovic. You guys saw him, you know, pretty closely. And, you know, he's been the talking point, kind of an intriguing place in his life, you know. And this week was uh, a step in the right direction. He got a few matches, played Dominic team in a close match. So what do you think is next of Djokovic? Again, now it's a guessing game. He's entered in Barcelona. Uh, if you're a Djokovic fan or just a tennis fan, where are you encouraged to see progress and how far, you know, uh, this this week goes in, in his terms of, you know, some sort of a return to top? Uh, for me, yes, big improvement. I wasn't in Miami to watch him um, in living color, as I like to say. I saw a bit of Miami on television and I was disappointed in Indian Wells against Tara Daniel. But I saw some big improvements this week. Uh, I think... Having Marian Vida back in the camp, that's a familiar face in his corner. And I thought the ball striking was very, very good. I would have loved to see him get through team and see that matchup with Nadal because I think if anybody could have given him a hard time, uh, it would have been Djokovic. You know, he understands the patterns of play well against Rafa. And, of course, you've got that psychological advantage that he held over him for so long. And that comes into play doesn't matter how well the other person on the other side of the net is playing or how good they're looking. Those head-to-head battles, they, they are something quite unique. And that's what I would have looked forward to, that, that mental battle between Jocko and Rafa. But you know what? They could play next week. They're in the same section of the draw, I believe, in Barcelona. Um, so possibly a collision course there. And uh, I would love to see that one unfold. I, I would probably still pick Nadal to get the win over him even next week. But um, it's just different dynamics at play there that make it a whole lot more interesting, Sakib. 
Sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. I know you guys have a plane to catch. This life of a tennis, you know, covering a commentator, going destination, destination. So we can end this with you both can give me five names each in a quick fire round. Who are the five challenges to Nadal in this clay season? Uh, Nick, you can go first. And then, uh, Rob, you can finish this off and we are good to go. Um... <laughs> As in who's going to get a set off him, Sakib? <laughs> Yeah. Or even take a good tie break. <laughs> uh, that's a good question, bud. Um, as I sit here right now, there aren't too many guys who are jumping in my mind, that's for sure. But that's why we follow the sport. Um, as, as Rob says, Djokovic obviously is the one guy. I think he's won four of the last six meetings, I want to say, against him on clay. So clearly if he gets things going again, that could be interesting. Um yeah, I mean, Robbie's pointing to me one, Martin Del Potro. Again, how he holds up on a clay court, hasn't played a lot of clay court tennis, has he? And I know that's obviously you know a guy who can hit through him. It's a tough one. Uh, they're not jumping out, I've got to be honest. Yeah, Robbie's suggesting David Goffin as well. Um, give you five, uh, uh, it's a tough proposition. Uh, it is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, my wild card. Um, on a clay court in Rome, if he's fired up, maybe someone like Fabio Fanini, who's beaten him on a clay court before, he's come back from you know two sets to love down against him at a major, even though that was on a hard court. But you know, I think I probably put Fanini. Vavrinka's probably still early days. Um, what about uh, David Goffin? Maybe John Isner. Uh-huh. You know, I'd probably throw in John Isner there. Guy's game is completely different to everybody else's, and. He's playing with a lot of confidence, and we know that he's troubled Nadal before at the French Open over the best of five sets. And if he's dropping bombs and can get to a tiebreaker against Nadal, you know it's a it's a very difficult proposition for Nadal. He's spoken about that matchup, and perhaps someone like John Isner as well could could give him a hard time. I definitely put Del Potro in there. I think he's playing some of the best tennis again in a long time. Sure. So how many am I up to? That must be close to three or four. And then uh, I think so. Yeah, you got that covered. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'll throw in my two and we'll end this. I think uh, Hyun Chung and uh, Nicholas Jarry could maybe come close if they catch fire, but that's a wish, that's a pray you know, out there. So anyway, guys, uh, it was an absolute pleasure and thanks for doing this on such a short notice. I hope, uh, you know, I had some decent questions and uh, have a safe flight wherever you're heading to. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Akip. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.